you turn in your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we have come to the end of this precious little letter. And we'll be looking at verses 12 specifically. 1 Peter chapter 5. As we just come to the Word of God today and to the preaching event, I was um, reading somewhere this week, I'm not exactly sure where, but I, I think someone had asked uh, John Piper, why preaching? Uh, there, are, you know, there are churches that um, don't do, really do preaching, uh, maybe a homily or maybe um, uh, it's sort of been um, cool to just have people kind of get around tables and discuss things. And uh, th- that might be okay, but it's not, it's not what the gospel calls for. I, it was Piper. He made his great point that there's something about the gospel that demands preaching. There's something about uh, this message that has to be heralded. It has to be proclaimed and exalted in. Uh, it's not enough just to discuss it. Uh, it's got to be exalted into the glory of God and proclaimed and heralded uh, because it's such an incredible good news. It's such incredible, an incredible message. And, so, and, and God intends it for the feeding of his sheep today. And so this morning, I encourage you to pay attention uh, to God's word, to delight in it, to enter into it, to receive it. Uh, it is God's desire to bless you and feed you with his word this morning. We're going to pick it up at verse, um, chapter 5, verse 1. We'll read the entire chapter, and again, focusing particularly at verse 12. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, I pray that today we would once again taste the grace that is available to sinners in Christ Jesus and that we would, by your Holy Spirit, stand firm in it. And by that, Lord, find you at work in our life exactly as it needs to happen. Today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday morning, if you were here, we had the, uh, the joy of looking at verses 10 and 11. 
just celebrating the, the amazing grace uh, of God, the grace that uh, we have for our own assurance that, that the God whom we come to in Jesus Christ is a God of all grace. His posture towards us is grace. And a God who has purposed before the foundation of the world to show you grace. And a God who promises uh, to hold you in His grace and has all power to accomplish that. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Clash symbols. It's a magnificent ending to this gospel letter. Uh, But the, the... the truth is that it's not the ending. It, it in many ways, ought to be the ending. Uh, what do you say after you've said that? After you've had this just incredible de- uh, declaration of the grace of God for sinners in, in, in verses 10 to 11, and then to him to be the dominion, amen, this thunderous, crescendoing uh, end of a, of a symphony of gospel truth, Amen. You can just hear it right in the symphony hall. But that's not the end. There follows this this one unified note. Maybe if you've been to the symphony, you've or heard it, or your grandparents told you about it, or something. But there, right? Sometimes they'll they'll have this wonderful crescendo at the end with with beautiful all the all the the various parts and instruments and then it'll be thunderous and then and then there'll be one note every instrument same tone just that's what we have to, this morning we have that one note that one unified um, finish that somehow brings it all together uh, and and so as we look at our text this morning we're going to see a peter says, this is the true grace of God, stand in it. That's the one note he actually wants to end on. He's, he's spent the whole gospel talking about the grace of God, and now, and now we have this, this one note, this is it. This is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. You see, what Peter gives us this morning is this, this necessary reminder that the gospel isn't simply to be admired it's to be applied. That verses 10 and 11 and all the glorious grace truth that's there, you see, that will be no good to you if you don't, if you don't receive it, if you don't engage it, if you don't, if you don't acquiesce to, with humble joy to that truth and receive the, the, the flooding hope and peace that comes from them. Grace needs to be entered into. You have to stand in it in order to experience the real truth of it. Boys and girls, maybe I could illustrate for you and, and for big boys and girls too. It's, it's the difference between going in the bathroom and turning on the shower and watching the water sort of cascade down and maybe if you got it turned hot you see the the steam kind of rising up and and it looks really cool and you just stand there and watch it that shower is not going to do you any good is it because uh, you you looked at the shower you turned on the shower you watched the shower but you didn't take a shower you didn't enter into it one of the things that the church has, has sometimes um, failed in is, is spend a lot of time looking at the shower, and, and it's worth looking at. Um, and, and we'll talk about, right, uh, different, um, 
maybe um, just looking at the grace of God, identifying the various parts that make the shower of grace work, and we'll have uh, camps taking positions on best shower faucets. You got your, your Delta group, and you got your Moen, and there's Kohler, and, and you're right, and, and guys will, will argue the merits maybe of that. But, but, but you see, the devil is more than happy to have us do everything except get in the shower. It's possible to be very familiar with all the various parts of the shower of God's grace except experience it. You can, you can be familiar with all of it except what it feels like to stand in there and let the truth cascade over you. There's too many people in the Christian churches this morning who know all about the shower of God's amazing grace except the joy and the peace and the freedom of standing in it. And so as Peter concludes his letter, he concludes it with a command. Take a shower. Get in it. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. Get into that grace. Let the the water of God's kindness to you in Jesus Christ and all that he promises in the gospel, all that Christ has accomplished, let that cascade over your soul. Let the grace of God penetrate into your heart. So that it it does what it does. It establishes you for trials. It equips you for service and ministry. It robes you with beauty as you wait and prepare for a coming bridegroom. And so this morning as we wrap up this letter, we're going to be reviewing what this means. When he says, this is the grace of God. What what, what is Peter pointing to? He's pointing back to his whole letter. And we're going to to summarize uh, the true grace of God. What is it? And then what it means to stand in it. And those are my two basic points. First, then the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. When Peter, the word he uses here for true, it means the genuineness of a thing. That Peter's saying this is the real deal. This is the authentic item. It's, it's the grace of God as it actually is. This isn't a knockoff. It's not a, a clever facsimile. This is the true Authentic grace that comes from God and that flows from the heart of God and accomplishes the purposes of God. It, it can be known. Here it, here it is. I've, I've written it. God has accomplished it and declared it. And Peter says, I've delivered it to you. I've delivered it to you. There's, there's a lots of us. Uh, it's popular to be confused about the gospel today. And, but, but Peter just sort of says, this is it. You can read it. You can know it. And by the true grace here, he, he wants us to remember that there are counterfeit gospels. There's such a thing as false grace. There's teaching that goes by the name of grace, but it's not the real thing. It's not the real deal. It's not the true grace of God. And so as we go through um, this morning, we'll be looking at some of the, of the um, examples of false grace that are out there, that we might be aware of the devil's schemes. I want to, just as we survey here um, the letter, you might want to have your Bible open so you can, you can trace along with me. The true grace of God is a saving grace, a saving grace. That might seem really basic. But by that, I mean that it is a, it's grace about God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's, 
God saving sinners through Jesus. So the true grace of God is about a dying Savior of sinners. It's explicitly about the rescue of hell-bent sinners, desperate rebels, through the perfect life and atoning death of the Son of God, Jesus. So the grace of God is about a cross. It's about a holy sacrifice of a sinless man who was placed there by his own Father so that he might atone for, pay for, and cover the guilt of sinners like you and like me. Now, why would I um, in just sort of pound away on the obvious? Because it's not as obvious as you might think. There's a lot of confusion in the church today, especially the American evangelical church, about what uh, the gospel and what God's grace is. Uh, people confuse, you see, uh, the, the gospel with Jesus' um, Jesus teaching or his miracles. And that, and that what we really need to do is just pay attention to, to the teaching of Jesus and try to uh, adopt his principles for living. There was, a, there was a pastor recently who uh, spent a year, I think he wrote a book on this, local pastor, spent a year of, of uh, living like Jesus lived. That's a year of missing the point. It's a year of confusing the sheep. It's not the point. Jesus, you see, his, the, the gospel isn't, primarily about his teaching. His teaching, if you read the Gospels, it's a lot of application of law. If your righteousness doesn't succeed and, and is, if it's not better than the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're, you're, you don't belong to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus presses the law very often in, in, the, in the Gospels. The gospel message isn't about the miracles of Jesus that's not the, or, or, the, or sort of the healing ministry of Jesus. That, that's, not the, that's not the gospel. The, the gospel is about the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice, the cross. Just if I could, if you got your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you'll see this is the apostolic message. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read the first four verses. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and so on. The gospel, Paul says, this is of first importance. It's not the miracles, it's not the teachings, not the principles to live by. It is the sacrifice. That's the gospel. 
that, that saves you. And the other messages you see don't have the ability to save you. They might appeal to you. They might, uh, it, it might sound sort of winsome to just live like Jesus lived. That might, that might sound attractive to, to um, adopt the life principles of Jesus. But you see, Peter knew Jesus. He walked with Jesus. Uh, Peter, the, the, the Jesus that Peter writes about was not a life coach. He wasn't a social worker. He wasn't a radical. He wasn't a revolutionary. What he was, you see, was the very Son of God come as the long-promised Messiah to die for sinners. That's what he was. And so chapter 1, verse 10, Peter writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's the gospel, the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories for Jesus and for all who belong to, to him. So the, so the true grace of God, you see, and this is, this is important. You, you, can go, you can go to church after church after church, and I'm not, I'm not knocking, I'm just I'm grieving. And you'll get life principles for a whole host of things. How to help you to have a better, a more um, fulfilled, satisfying, successful life. That is not the true grace of God. You can spend your entire life listening to that and seeking to apply that and maybe even finding some benefit in that and you will go to hell if you don't understand and embrace the true grace of God. It's not how to help Americans have their best life now. It's about how to rescue sinners from the judgment they deserve and to reconcile us to God and make us heirs of everlasting life forever and ever. And so that's the true grace of God and it's rooted, you see, in the death of Jesus. The grace of God that flows to us is not through the preaching of Christ primarily, but the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ. When he had nails pounded through his hands and his feet and a spear was thrust into his side from which blood and water flowed. The true grace of God is bloody grace. Because it's atoning grace. And so Peter writes 1 verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body. In his body. So when the whips opened up his back, when the thorns pressed into his head, as the nails went through the hands and the spear through his side, he bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, his wounds, you've been healed. Not his teaching, not his example. By the blood, the wounds, you've been healed. Now why is that important? Because that's the only gospel that's able to humble you. 
A gospel of principles will appeal to your good sense and your good basic nature and and encourage you that if you just adopt the right teaching, the right principles, uh, you can be all that you want to be. All that you think you ought to get for your life, you can have it. This is the only gospel you see that's able to humble you, that pours contempt on all your pride. When you stand before a crucified Jesus, the very Son of God, who was on that cross for one reason and one reason only, because God loved you enough to offer a sacrifice of his Son for your sin. And if that doesn't humble you, then you you haven't seen it. But once you see it, this alone will pour contempt on your pride. This is the true grace of God. But wonderfully, Peter's gospel and the grace as he understands it, it's not about a dead Jesus, but a living Christ. Jesus died, but he's not dead He's alive. He rose again. And so he has given us right off the bat, 1 verse 3, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And again, Peter knows what he's talking about. He's experienced that hope in his own life. That Jesus Christ, 3 verse 18, died once for sin. Put to death in the body but made alive by his spirit. That Jesus Christ is a resurrected Christ. He, is, he was dead, now he's alive to live forevermore. And he's a reigning Christ, 3 verse 20. He is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. He is king of kings and reigns as lord of lords. And he's a returning Christ. He's coming again. That note sounds throughout Peter's letter. Set your hope, 1 verse 13, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have all this grace now, and Peter says, but set your hope, your confidence in all the grace that's going to be revealed then when Jesus comes again. 4 verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Uh, We read in chapter 5 that uh, of the glory that's going to be revealed. Glory is going to be revealed when Jesus comes. And God's called us to that glory, 510. He's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. You see, the the true grace of God takes us from where we were and and through the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and the ascension, the reign of Christ and the return of Christ, it ushers you into glory. Not a better life, not even a sinless life, not a healthy life, right? It would be wonderful to have healthy bodies in our glorified self. But you see, those are just accoutrements. The glory is the essential thing. That, that you're gonna, you are going to enter into the glory of God, and the glory of God will enter into you. That, that you'll be robed in glory. Think of it. Glory means weight. Chavod is the Hebrew. The significance, worth. You, that, You're made of dust. You're a mist in the morning. Here today, gone tomorrow. And yet the gospel promises 
that God has called you the speck of dust to glory forever in Christ and with Christ. That's the true grace of God. That's the true grace of God. Don't let anyone rob you of all that grace, all that glory with a cheap knockoff imitation. The grace of God, the true grace of God is a saving grace. It's a sanctifying grace. It doesn't just rescue a sinner from the penalty of sin. It's not just life insurance for eternity. The true grace of God progressively frees the sinner from the power and pollution of sin. It's a grace of God that goes to work. You see, there were some already in Peter's day who were, who were teaching the grace of God as a license to sin. He'll talk about that in, in his second letter. Jude uh, specifically uh, addresses it, names it. Um, these false teachers, he says in verse 4, pervert the grace of God into a license for sensuality. Right? I'm forgiven. God loves to forgive sinners. So the more I sin, the more, great, the more glory he gets. Let's sin that grace may abound. Paul ran into the same things in the letter to the Romans. So that's, that's not the true grace of God. The true grace of God that tells you just to um, don't worry about holiness is not true grace. True grace, if, if you stood before the cross and you have, a, you have a sense of the glory that's yet to come and all the love of God for you that brings you from there to eternity, that grace it's going to give you a hunger for righteousness. You, you're going to be so done with sin. You're going to be so hungry to be like Christ. And uh, verse 114, you see, the true grace of God empowers this. It calls us to us. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If God's got his hold on you, you shall be holy. It's the call that God's called us to, and he's going to make it happen. It's going to happen. So the true grace of God, you see, strengthens us then to, to take a stand against the enemies of our soul, the world, and the flesh, and the devil. The true grace of God is, is going to equip you so that you cannot just acquiesce to, to your former passions. You can't just, just get by, uh, live like the world. You can't just adopt the principles of this world. Maybe you can for a little while, and maybe you've been doing it for a long while, but as the Holy Spirit is at work, you're going to start sensing something's not meshing. How does this behavior mesh with who I am in Christ? It doesn't fit anymore. I used to laugh at those jokes. I don't think they're funny. I used to listen to that music. I don't think that's helpful. I used to go and enjoy this. I used to pursue that. And, and it's, it's okay. But I'm speeding toward eternity every day. Is that really what I want to give my life to? I want to be known as the guy that loved this. That really was the defining character of my life, that I poured myself into that. You see, you'll just, you'll just start sensing these things, don't, they don't fit with who I am and who Christ has called me to be. That's sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace, I think we confuse as some um, power that just kind of descends on you so that suddenly you're able to keep the Ten Commandments. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't look like that. 
That's going to be happening, but it's progressive. You see, and so often the sin, the besetting sins that we're, that we're focusing on are just God's window into uh, to help us to see the reality of our own soul. And, and, and how desperate our, our, our need really is. And, and, and isn't it true that maybe you're focused on your, your lack of patience, you're focused on your anger issue, you're focused on your lust issue, um, and God's, he is boring down to get to the pride and the self-reliance and the self-dependence. But Peter calls us, you see, to stand in this sanctifying grace of God. Uh, there's a battle going on. There's a devil that's a roaring lion. There's enemies. Um, there's passions that wage war with your soul, 2 verse 11. But we can stand in the grace of God. We can robe ourselves in the sanctifying grace of God. Your besetting sins are defeated and dying sins. Christ lives and Christ lives in you. And his grace will sanctify you. It will. So I encourage young people to talk to old saints sometimes. Because they were young once, and they had all the same battles going on in their heart. And some of those battles are remaining, but what they can testify is that Jesus wins, even in the least of us. Peter, in this letter, I'm not going to take a lot of time in this because we don't have it this morning, but Peter just outlines what holiness looks like. It doesn't, like I said, doesn't look like just keeping rules, but what it looks like is submission, glad submission. That's where he started, chapter 2. Submission to authorities, submission to masters, bosses, to the government, submission to a husband. It's beautiful, it's precious in God's sight. There's, there's something about submission that should, it, it should be a hallmark of a Christian. We, we submit. That does not sound like a campaign slogan, does it? That doesn't really rally the troops. It's exactly what Peter says holiness looks like. Submission. For the Lord's sake. So that we silence the talk, the foolish talk of ignorant people, the world. And so we honor our Father as we follow our Savior who submitted. We're to be marked by submission. We're to be marked by expectant suffering and, 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 and service to one another. So 4, 10, 8 through 10, this comes through the letter over and over. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Sanctifying grace makes you love people. And bear with people. Pharisees kept the rules. They didn't love people. This is where you'll run into your need for Christ. Do I love, do I love people? Hard people. People that wear me out. People that hurt me. People that have sinned against me. Is Christ giving me a love for people? And then a willingness to be in the suffering not as though something strange were happening to me, because Peter, remember, he said, it's not, it's not strange, it's what you've been called to this. And, and, and there, there's a particular calling here to suffer for doing good. That's the shocking thing, to suffer for doing, for doing good. We have this deeply ingrained conviction that you should not have to suffer for doing good. If you pull, uh, pull over and help someone uh, because they ran out of gas, and, he, uh, and, you, and you give him gas, and you took time out of your day, and then he steals your wallet, you, that should not happen. Something has fundamentally gone wrong. If you open up your home to someone and, and, and have them come and live with you, and you minister to them, and they do something that wounds you, should not be happening. But that's exactly what he's talking about. 
God is pleased when we suffer for doing good, when we, when we help someone to our own hurt and we open our home and, and our family and we experience suffering in that and we love people who revile us and we are persecuted for our faith. Peter writes 2.20, what, if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure it. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. That's the call. That's what holiness looks like. Glad submission, loving service, expectant suffering. How do you do that? How do you do that? Well, because true grace is sovereign, sustaining grace. We couldn't possibly do that in our strength. Not even a chance. You couldn't even get started, seriously. But you see, the true grace of God is sovereign, sustaining, empowering grace. 5, 10, 11, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Jesus Christ will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. He's going to hold you fast. He's going to work these things into your life. The grace of God is sovereign grace. That means it's not rooted in what you've done. It's not rooted in what you hope to do. It's rooted in God's character and his will. He wanted to save you. That's why you got saved. That's why you're a Christian. He wanted to save you. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you're here in, in church, the, beauty, the beautiful thing is that as you confess your sin, the Bible promises this God has a desire that you should not perish, that you should have everlasting life, that you would come and know this Jesus. It's sovereign grace, and it's sustaining grace. It's going to hold you until you are finally presented to the calling that you received in eternity past, until you finally, yes, you personally, robed with glory, are ushered into the presence of King Jesus. The true grace of God is sovereign and sustaining grace. We need to stand in it. We need to stand in it. The grace of God is, is where you have to go into it. You have, to, you have to stand in it. And as we do that, you see, there's going to be, there's, something's going to happen to us. I was reading just uh, a while back in 2 Corinthians. I'm slowly making my way through that. And uh, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2 struck me where Paul writes to this church, this struggling church. And yet this is the second letter now. He rebuked them strongly in the first and in the second. He's going he's to shower a lot of kindness on them. But he says, to the church, you are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So in 1 Peter, we have a letter to the church. Well, the church is supposed to be a letter to the world. A letter that, that says this is what the gospel can do in the lives of real people. A letter that's written on the hearts by the Spirit of God so that other people around us can, can read the reality of the truths that we profess as they watch us live. I read an article last week by Ray Ortland, How to Build a Gospel Culture in Your Church. I'll sort of wrap with this. How to Build a Gospel Culture. He says the first thing you got to do is you got to understand the gospel. You got to understand that this biblical message of divine grace for undeserving sinners through the perfect life and atoning death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This like, just like what we talked about. You got to know that. Well, what's a gospel culture? A gospel culture is the shared experience of grace by the undeserving. 
The corporate incarnation, he says, of the biblical message in the tone, values, aroma, honesty, freedom, gentleness, humility, and cheerfulness of the church. That, that people should be able to see as they watch us worship together and live together that we've made the connection between the thing that we profess and how we live. That we're not just talking about the shower of God's grace, but we, Sunday after Sunday, and Day after day, we step into it, and it's doing something. And Orland asks, why does this matter? And he says, because faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal purity. It requires relational beauty. If we fail to pursue a church culture shaped by the grace of the gospel, we risk undermining what we say by what we do. If you think about the prophet Isaiah, when he comes and he charges God's people, let's just read maybe chapter 1, chapter 58. He charges them with crimes against God. He doesn't charge them with false teaching. The charges false living. They're orthodox doctrinally, but they're not orthodox in their communal life, in their, in their relationships, in the way they treat people. And so that, that God is being lied about by his people to the surrounding nations. Because they say that they are children of God. They say that they believe the law of God, and yet they live like pagans. They live like none of it's true. That's what they're charged for. Paul, when he rebukes Peter, Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 2. He doesn't go to Peter and rebuke Peter for teaching erroneous doctrine. He rebukes him because his behavior was nullifying the very gospel he was talking about. Peter was preaching this true grace of God, a gospel where God is gracious by faith alone, by grace alone. We add nothing to it. And then Peter would slip off and go eat with the Judaizers who said, well, it's by faith but not faith alone. It's faith plus circumcision. It's faith plus adherence to the Mosaic Commandments. And, and, and Paul just nails him. Peter, your, your life is nullifying your message. And that can happen in a church. One of the things that we need to realize is um, that our, life, our lives together can nullify what we say we believe. There's a great quote here by Orland. He says, the deal breaker in a gospel culture is not sin. The deal breaker in a gospel culture is not sin. Sin, failure, and weakness, but words or behavior making the church unsafe for other sinners. The greatest threat to a typical church is not the adulterer, but the gossip, who may be outwardly blameless, but is inwardly ravenous. In a gospel culture, any sinner can bring any sin and find relief in the Lord simply by walking in gentle honest, honesty and harmony with other sinners there. You see... I think that's a lesson that the churches need to hear over and over again. We need to hear it in our own homes and families. What destroys the gospel culture of your home isn't sin. That's the fertile soil for a gospel culture. You are going to sin. Your children are going to sin. And sometimes it's going to happen egregiously. That is not the failure of a gospel culture. That's the opportunity for a gospel culture to manifest itself. The same in a church. The deal breaker isn't sin. We are going to sin. People are going to offend you. People are going to fail you. They're going to disappoint you. 
Because we're sinners still. But that's not the deal breaker. That's just the opportunity, you see, for the gospel, the grace of the gospel to manifest itself. This will be what shocks the world when they see normal people, weak people, and sinful people love other normal, weak, sinful people. Where does that come from? How does that happen? And how do you explain the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the gentleness? How do you, what's, what's happening? The gospel is taking root. People are standing in the grace and it's changing their life. And that's Peter's command. That's how he wants to close. Stand in it. Stand in it. You know the gospel. Stand in it. Take your sin, friend. Take your sin to the cross. Take your shame. Take your guilt. All your failure, your weakness. Take the thing that maybe you don't dare speak to another living soul. Take that to a dying Savior and leave it there. Leave it there. It's paid for. It's gone. It's forgiven. It's washed away. And nothing can bring it back. Take your fears to a throne where there is a living king. The news in this world is awful. The news in the kingdom of God is incredible. Christ has never failed in any of his purposes. He is sovereignly ordaining everything you read in the newspaper headline. So we can, grieve, we can grieve, that's appropriate. We can pray, that's absolutely appropriate. But cast your cares upon him. He cares for you. There's a loving king who gave his life for you that's seated on the throne. Take your sin to the cross. Take your fears to the throne. Take your faith to the grave. Because you will find there awaiting Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for the true grace of God. I thank you, Lord, that it is a grace that's able to save to the uttermost and to save anyone. Father, you know, you know our heart this morning. You know who's here. You know exactly where maybe we've avoided standing in the grace. Maybe our pride wants us to still stand in our performance or stand in our theology, our knowledge. Lord, I pray that we would abandon that and stand in, in grace. Maybe our guilt, our shame clings to us. We, we've just not stepped into the shower of your grace. Our fears, Lord, are things that maybe we hold on to. I pray, Lord, that we would bring the whole of ourselves and all of our need to all the whole of Jesus in all of his accomplishment, all of his power, all of his grace, all of his promises. And we would find rest there. We thank you that our Jesus is a, a king of love. And his love and his kindness and his mercy will never, ever fail. We can stand on that foundation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.